Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast brought to you by Luke Zadkovich and Callum Chain. I'm Luke. This is Callum. Happy New Year, Luke. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Thank you. How are you? Good. Good. Thank you. Welcome back to all our, our listeners out there. Um, we are happy to have you here for another year. And we're coming to you from the studio. We're in a studio again, which is always fun. Always good to do these things face to face. And how was how's your holiday, Callum? I had a nice a nice Christmas break. I was with the in-laws. Um, how how was yours? Good. Yeah, really good. I uh, I managed to have a break, an actual proper break for I don't know the first time in ages where I tried to avoid getting onto onto phones and and computers. So that was nice. Um, and also, uh, as you know, taught that uh, shipping and commodities law course out in Australia. So that was a good good. Uh, experience as well i was i was sorry not to be able to join you and you had to do do case by case by case by case by case by the sounds of it (laughs) yeah it's a a fair way of putting it Um, we definitely got into some of the juicy ones we had a had a good go at the eternal bliss which Mm. was uh which was fun and um we set the ocean victory as another case for for the students to to get into another fun one um, and we've got a good case to discuss today. We have somebody who has been busy over Christmas because this was a hearing on the 15th of December and a judgment on the 13th of January. So Sir Nigel Tear, sitting as a judge of the High Court, had a busy Christmas period, presumably preparing this interesting judgment. What better way to spend a Christmas period, hey, than, than writing about the Hague-Visby rules and limitations under those rules. I'm sure you've had those holidays in the past. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my wife loves them. Um, so, right, this case is called uh, Trafigura and TKK Shipping. Um, it's a decision of the English Commercial Court, so the first instance uh, layer in, uh, in England, uh, as Callum says, handed down recently um, on the 13th of January, 2023. Um, and look, it's it's a good one. I'm really looking forward to getting into this case. Um, what's, I think, procedurally interesting, and we've seen a couple of these before, is that the, the underlying matter is subject to uh, London arbitration. Um, and the parties, both the claimant and defendant, had agreed to put a legal question um, before the court uh, under Section 45 of the Arbitration Act 1996. So rather than have the three-panel arbitration um, panel decide this point of law along with all the factual issues, uh, given its importance and how, how much the case seemingly turns on this legal point, uh, the parties agreed to put that to the court to decide. And I think sometimes this is where there's a there's a decision which, if the arbitrators went either way on it, could be open to an appeal on a point of law because you would you would get through that um, point of public importance hurdle pretty easily. And I think that's the case here. Um, and the other case where we've seen it, as you mentioned before, is the Eternal Bliss. That whole case, which is now up in the Supreme Court, has all come from a Section 45 um, ap- application where the parties agreed, okay, well, this this question is one for the court, and then the the arbitration tribunal can 
can give their award once they've had guidance from the court on what on what the law is on this point. Yeah, and we were just talking about this the other day, weren't we? In that, um, it, it's worth considering on on your cases whether there are matters that should be decided in this kind of way, where uh, the the case is likely to turn on a point of law um, more so than the facts. Of course, there are factual issues to be decided here, and um, you know. If, if this is contested all the way through, then uh, then those facts will be decided by the the arbitration tribunal. But when the quantum is so heavily affected by a point of law, it actually makes a lot of sense um, to put it before the court, especially if you're going to end up having a, having to deal with an appeal under Section 69 anyway, following a full hearing and all the costs that are associated with that. So you can see a decision like this. Um, if this decision is accepted um, uh, by uh, by the losing party and not appealed further, which we'll get into, I suspect, uh, you know, uh, after we've discussed it, um, then you can see how it's kind of set up then for the parties to try and find a resolution. And I've, I have a second interesting procedural point on this one, okay, which also throws to the eternal bliss. But I'm going to actually park it because All I right, want, okay. as as we unravel the decision. Um, and as we unravel the judgment, I will I'll I'll flag it with uh, great pomp and circumstance as I as I drop the second interesting procedural point on this one. Very good. Let's keep our listeners in anticipation. Keep on their toes. Yeah, you've been you've been listening to the Stephen Bartlett approach of always <laughs> leaving something for the end to keep everyone uh, interested. We can put that bit on the little video teaser. <laughs> second, the, the secondary point of procedural law. That's right. what everyone stick, sticks around for. Excellent. Very good. Well, look, let's open up with um, some facts on this, as we typically do. Um, do you want to take take that away? Go yeah, on. let's let's do that. So, so one of the benefits for podcasters talking about judgments under section 45 applications is that the facts are all agreed and nice and clear and concise so what we have here is it's a claim between uh, Traffy and TKK and Traffy were the owner of a bulk cargo of uh, zinc calcine um, around about 10,000 uh, metric tons of of the cargo um, there were the there was a grounding um, at some point on the uh, on the voyage, there was an engine failure and the vessel grounded uh, in French Polynesia. The vessel suffered extensive damage um, and there was a uh, Lloyd's Open Forum opened um, and uh, the all, all the normal works for, for that kind of casualty. Um, as a part of that, the cargo, the entirety of the cargo, was then was then uh, subject to a lien, subject to uh, su- subject to some rights that were exercised against it. Um, but the only physically damaged part of the cargo was around about seven hundred and fifty metric tons. So you've got ten thousand metric tons of cargo against which a lien is is asserted over the entirety, and you've got physical damage to. Only about seven and seven eight percent of the value of the cargo, um, and that's really the key point here is this, is to understand the distinction between the amount of the cargo physically damaged and the amount of the cargo against which some right other than the right of the receiver was being exercised. Yeah, which I think you could fit into kind of an economic loss type damage, which we're going to get into. Depends who you ask. It depends on who you ask, <laughs> but it, you know, you've got this distinction between physical damage and economic yes, um, exactly. economic damage of 
using the, the you know the word damage but that's kind of part of the the contention in the case right and so yeah and so we had these uh, different types of loss that were were suffered as a result of all this you had the liability to pay the salvers which was about 7 million you had the physical loss and damage to the cargo which is about uh, $270,000 um, and then you had the on shipment cost in respect of the cargo which was another $700,000 so um, you've got some substantial costs related uh, to well, of an economic um, loss kind of um, type, and then you've got some much lower uh, damages that were suffered because of the the physical loss yeah. and damage. And the and the claimant is trying to bring a claim to recover its loss. Um, under the bill, and the owner is relying on the Hague-Visby limitations and saying, "You cannot your your claim is limited um, under the Hague-Visby rules, in particular Article Four, Rule Five A, um, which is the is the rule which which has the um, the, the limitation um, relating to kind of units of account, the special drawing rights, which have a kind of dollar value, um, and the the way that this works is that it's either the the um, the, the the loss that the um the, or the, sorry the the limitation on the loss that the owner can be responsible for is either six hundred sixty seven point six seven units of account per package or two units of account per kilogram of gross weight and what this whole case really turns on is whether uh, well and I should I should finish off in actually the sentence um it's the equivalent of six hundred sixty seven point six seven units of account per package or two units of account per kilogram of gross weight of the goods lost or damaged. So owner's, owner's li- limitation on liability is, is a factor of the amount of the weight of the goods lost or damaged. And those are, those are really the, the key words. Well, those words and some other words in this, in this clause as well. Um, what does the goods lost or damaged mean? Does that mean as... You know, might seem on at first glance only related to physical damage, so goods that are lost, lost, or damaged, damaged in the sense of physical damage, or does the word damaged there include um, those of an economic nature and not not physical, not only physical uh, damage? So those are key words in this provision, the goods lost or damaged, and we're going to get into that and this whole decision really turns on um, interpreting what those words mean. The other words that are important in this clause, and just starting from the top of the clause, um, it says, unless the nature and value of such goods have been declared by the shipper before shipment and inserted in the bill of lading, neither the carrier nor the ship shall in any event be or become liable for any loss or damage to or in connection with the goods in an amount exceeding, and that's the, the rest of the clause that, that Callum mentioned before. But the language here, uh, for any loss or damage to or in connection with the goods, that was also in play to an extent. And there's, there was some debate, at least, or some discussion around: Does in connection with the goods include losses of an economic nature as well as physical damage? Um, not as contentious, perhaps, um, as the second point, but it it was related. And, and I think one of the the real elements to this um, 
uh, and we're going to get into this, is what's the relationship or the linkage between these two um, sets of words within the same sentence, within the same provision, and how do they interact with each other? Can you give the two sets of words different meanings? Should they be read to have similar meanings? How do they, what's the connection between the two? And, and if the parties have identified a liability for loss or damage to or in connection with the goods, then what is the type of damage that they're envisaging as meaning in as as being in connection with so they yeah. have they almost have three categories they have they, they have they have lost they have damage and they have loss or damage in connection with goods and then later on they only have lost goods that are lost or damaged so it seems as though or it, it's argued in this case that um what they don't have in the second in the second part of the sentence is the um goods lost or damaged or loss or damage in connection with those goods um and that's one of the arguments you know that's raised i think there's a, a kind of in a reasonably um quick point that we can that we can uh, trip through which is under under article 4 rule 5a this, this provision that we're that we've been looking at the the um liability is measured against either units of account per package or units of account per kilogram um, and one point which is well-settled law is that where you have a bulk cargo like this, 10,000 metric tons of um, uh, whatever the cargo is in each case, the where it talks about units, uh, you know, units per account, units of account uh, per package, you you wouldn't you wouldn't be in that situation in this kind of bulk cargo. You're looking at at the kilograms only, and you can't argue, for example, that one metric ton. Is a is actually a, a a package, or that you know one one um, I don't know one kilogram is a package, and then benefit from the six hundred sixty seven point two units of account per package, um, and that's well settled law. So really, what we're interested in here is this is this two units of account per kilogram um, um, of the of of the goods. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think maybe if we set out the respective cases that the the parties are arguing, the claimant's case and the defendant's case, that might be a, a good way of kind of phrasing or you know staging the arguments uh, that the parties are having here. But before we do, um, w- one of the the real interesting aspects of this decision is that there has been a preceding case dealing with this point, um, the the Limnos decision in 2008. So not that long ago, uh, Serena Navigation and, and DARA Commercial Establishment. Um, and that was a decision, another first instance decision, which is important from a from a precedent uh, perspective uh, of um, of Burton, uh, Mr. Justice Burton. And uh, uh, in that case, um, the the there was a clear decision on this, um, and uh, I, I would have thought, you know, almost like as a as an aside remark. Um, it, I think one of the parties would have had a lot of comfort, you know, in, in in arguing this matter, in correspondence leading up to it, in having the discussions, and and I think it's really, uh, uh, really kind of um, pertinent to to note that even in cases where there might be a decision that's gone against you, and you have a, a new case come along that's on point. If it's only a first instance decision particularly, but not just first instance decisions, it could be a decision that's gone up as well. Um, and it, it goes against your position that your clients want to want to argue. You've got to ask yourself, 
is that decision right? Right? And, and that's what's happened here, right? The, the, there's a decision that's on point, and one party would be saying, yes, you know, look, we've got the authority here. Um, you know, you should be uh, uh, negotiating on the basis of this clear authority, pretty clear. Um, there's some obviously issues with it and what have you, which we're going to get into. But uh, you can just see how that would have been presented as a as almost like a fait accompli on the on this point. And then the argument is, well, is that right? And this this is the second interesting procedural point. Right. Okay. So sorry, it's, it's around <laughs> it's, it's around precedent, and so the the basic law. The basic English position on on precedent is that all courts below or equal to a court where a decision has been made are bound by that decision. Mm. So normally speaking, if you have a high court judgment which is against you, then you can't go you can't get past that that decision or that that concluded um, uh, I guess this the status of law concluded at, at that level unless you go up to the next level. So normally you would need to go to the Court of Appeal to overturn a decision of the High Court, unless it's the first time that issue's been decided by the, by the High Court. So here, we're looking at the Limnos, and the Limnos has been decided um, against the, the cargo owner in this case. So the, 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 the ratio of the Limnos is that the goods are not damaged um, by the exercise of a lien, for example, that's 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 the effect of the ratio of the limnos is that the 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 goods have to have physical damage for them to be considered lost or damaged for the purposes of this, of this limitation, um, and because it's the only time that's been decided, it's open to any party to challenge it at high court level, and the second judge who comes along to it is not bound by that first decision, um, and where this gets even more interesting to me, um, and I'm going to slightly jump the gun here and say that the limnos was overturned in this decision that we're, that we're discussing. So that you have the first decision by the, um, by the, by the uh, high court back in, I think, 2008. Mm. The same issue then comes before the same court for the second time, and that judge has free reign to go against the first judge decision. If, if, if it's already been, if, if, if the limnos had been followed already, then this decision would not be able to be the way that it is. But because it's not yet been followed, um, Sir Nigel Tier can, can say, actually, I disagree with that. And that leads to the question of what's the status of this judgment in terms of precedent. When you have a first judge that's gone one way and a second judge that's gone the other way, it's still open to a third judge to go back to the original decision, even at high court level. But their path is very narrow. They, have, they would have to be shown that Sir Nigel Tier in this case wrongfully departed from the original decision of Justice Burton. So it's, a, it, it's not, it's not it's quite the, simple. It's not looking at it completely afresh. Exactly. So the third judge needs to look at it through the judgment of Sir Nigel Tier yeah. and see how he treated the judgment of right. Burton. And that comes through in the way that this judgment's written. Yeah, I see. I see where you're going with that. And so th there's there's a, a section near the end of this um, case where, when I initially read it, without thinking about that point of of precedent, which I'm so glad you brought it up, Callum. Uh, I was like, why has he gone back to this? Like, why has he gone back to again explain how how he treated Burton's decision? Yeah. But it's for that reason, right? It's kind of to set the parameters for the third judge who may come along um, and then perhaps, you know, disagree with um, 
uh, Sir Justice Tears decision here. Um, and yeah, it's uh, I, I thought it's um, it, it, it's a really interesting point on procedure. Uh, and we'll see. Like maybe let's talk about it a bit more than getting get into the the legal discussion um, as to whether this uh, first instance decision will be appealed to the Court of Appeal. Yeah, and that would that would ruin my interesting point on precedent because the Court of Appeal can decide whatever it wants without the without feeling like it has to follow either Justice Burton or Sir Nigel Tier. And we have we have a decision here that goes. A, a, completely opposite way to the prior decision so it's kind of begging for a court of appeal to uh to decide it but it, it, we're gonna have, we're gonna come on to whether we think this is wrong yeah and what do you what do you think <laughs> well i think it's right i think this decision is right um i i i struggled with and i say this with the greatest respect some of the the findings of of burden on on the key provisions let's get into it yeah. let, let's let, let's um explain the two arguments do you want to set out what the claimant's position is on this. Yeah, so the claimants, and remember the claimants are trying to say we want to have um, a, the biggest possible liability cap. So we, we, want, we want the liability cap to be extended and therefore we want the liability cap to be measured against the entirety of the goods, not just the physically damaged goods. And what the claimant said was there is there are a number of categories of damage relating to goods that don't relate to physical damage to goods. There's a number of economic damage damages that could happen to goods. And there are a number of examples that they raise, including things like delay. If there's if there's a delay, then the goods can become economically damaged by their depreciation or by changes in the market. Um, you know, if if if, it, if you have a cargo of oil and you know everyone knows the oil price can change very rapidly, um, basis the political circumstances or or weather or who, you know almost anything else can 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 change these markets very quickly, um, and that cargo could then be worth a lot less and could. In, in the argument of the claimants, have been economically damaged by something that has gone on during the during the contract of carriage, um, and they said this is similarly the case here because we, what was intended to be delivered under this contract were 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 goods that were free of any lien or fr free of any other right that could be asserted against those goods by a third party, and what has been delivered is something materially different from that. And the effect is that the the value of the goods has suffered damage because of what's been you know it's not physical damage sure but but the the existence of these of these kind of proprietary rights over the over the cargo that can be exercised by somebody who's not the intended receiver is a is a form of damage exactly and just to emphasize that what we're talking about here is does the limit apply to only the physically damaged goods so the small parcel of 700 tons or does the limit apply to all of the goods on the basis that all of the goods have been damaged in an economic sense through through um, the assertion of this lien and if it's the former so if the limit only applies to a small portion of the goods um, that's going to restrict the claimant's claim. The defendant will have um, a, a tight limit, if you like, on on quantum. If, however, the the limit applies over the full cargo, then um, then the defendants are going to be liable for for a lot more. Um, and that's why it it really turns on what 
what does the limit apply over? And that's why we're looking at the, the limitation provision in the Hague-Visby rules to construe it, to say, does it cover only physical damage goods or uh, does it apply also to, dam- to goods that are damaged uh, in an economic sense? Um, there, there are a lot of different case law. There's a, lot, there's a lot of case law looking at different formulations around loss or damage or goods lost or damaged. Um, but there is only the one case um, that we've discussed earlier, Mr. Justice Burton's decision in the Limnos, which deals with this specific point. So, the, so the, the parties were arguing around other cases um, that each had either a broad view on what loss or damage could be, or a narrow view. And I think one of the one of the arguments uh, that was made. Well, it wasn't really an argument. One of the passages that was quite forceful in Mr. Justice Burton's decision in the Limnos was where he was talking about what the claimant was was arguing was kind of economic damage, and he was saying that that the the physically undamaged goods weren't economically damaged. He said their value may may have been affected. There may be a depression in respect of their price. The goods may be depreciated. But in my judgment, they cannot be sensibly described as damaged. So he was drawing a distinction between a kind of loss of value, depreciation, and some kind of physical damage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And look, I think one of the um, important starting points in this legal discussion is to um, understand the type of provision that we're construing here. Um, we are construing a international convention. And the typical laws of construction of a contract under English law are slightly different than when you're looking at an international convention. I thought that was worth emphasizing um, because you're, you're looking at uh, a provision. Actually, this is something that came up in the discussions during the, um, the university course uh, that I gave just, just recently with the students in, in that when we were talking about the Hague-Visby rules, I was explaining that they are a creature of negotiation over years yeah. um, uh, between different contracting states of the convention or, or non-contracting states. And, and they are a product of compromise, a co- product of discussions. And the, the Hague-Visby rules um, themselves, or what were originally the Hague rules, um, were kind of... Th- this compromise between putting some limits on and 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 restricting a carrier's ability to just contract freely and set out whatever exclusions they wanted in in contracts of carriage um, to you know rein that in so they, they had some parameters around um, the the exclusions that could be written in by carriers into into the, the contracts of carriage but at the same time uh, give some defenses to carriers where, you know, it was like, a, you know, like a compromise, you know, we want to rein in your freedom of contract, but at the same time, there are going to be some very clear limitations like this one um, or defences that you have uh, under the Hague-Visby rules. And understanding the nature of the instrument that you're construing and how it's constructed uh, is relevant and important for how you then interpret it. Yeah. And I thought what was interesting was that at the... In the initial, in the original currency, and at the original time at which these, this kind of special drawing rights provision was inserted into into these rules or agreed to to apply um, to to these rules, I can't remember whether that was the Hague rules or the Hague Visby rules, but in either case, when it was 
when when that was first agreed, it was seen as a as a limit that would be unlikely to be reached. It was for very very special cargoes that they would that they would hit this upper threshold, mm. and the idea wasn't that owners would normally have an argument to say where our liability is limited. The idea was that only in very special cases where there's a special type of cargo will will that will that threshold be met. Mm. Um, it, ultimately, from a kind of strict interpretive uh, standpoint, the looking at looking at the kind of negotiations around the Hague-Visby rules, looking at the history of the Hague-Visby rules, looking at the the convention at which they they were um, agreed didn't assist in this case. Um, they they in order to in order to use that that background information, um, as Sir Nigel Tier said, they they would need to have a bullseye to resolve ambiguity, um, or alternatively they would have to confirm the decision of the judge. So the way that it works is that the judge will look through, uh, well, the, the judge will treat the case um, in isolation, consider whether or not they, they you know, what, what do they think the interpretation is under English law of this convention, and then look back for the, for look back through uh, these, these, um, the kind of material surrounding the inception of the, of the international um, convention or regulations that are being considered, and then see if if that confirms their meaning. Mm. And if that confirms their meaning, then great, they've, they've got the right meaning. And if not, then to change their mind, they need a real bullseye um, to resolve ambiguity. And they said, actually, neither applies here. It doesn't confirm what I'm thinking, but equally, it doesn't tell me that I'm totally wrong. That's right. So it, it doesn't, <laughs> the decision doesn't really turn on uh, the, the type of interpretation that you apply to an international convention. But uh, the point that I'm making is that it's really broad principles of interpretation which are generally accepted uh, that, that you're looking at, you know, when you're trying to construe a convention rather than English law rules on construction. Um, and it's, it's, it's a slightly different approach. It not, might not necessarily lead to a different outcome in interpretation, but it's, it's important to understand, in, understand the instrument in which you're construing. So, moving on, what do we think about the, uh, um, the analysis here? What do we think about... Um, some of the detail of uh, of how um, uh, Sir Nigel Tier resolved this one. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a very thorough look through through the authorities, a very reasoned decision, and in my view, a sensible commercial one. Ultimately, um, it, it doesn't, to me, make a, a lot of sense. And there are some reasons reasons that came through in the um, in the judgment for that. Uh, one of the ones that I found most compelling was the mitigation argument. Which is that yeah. if you're a claimant who has suffered damage to goods at the hands of the carrier, and some of the cargo is damaged but some of it is not, then you you would actually be disincentivized from trying to mitigate the amount of cargo damaged, because you're for every metric ton that you save, you cost yourself in this liability cap. So you know the the your your act in saving your cargo is only increasing the the limitation of liability that the ship owner benefits from, or the, you know your future defendant benefits from, um, and that in the Limnos decision that was that was flagged and considered, and found not to be particularly relevant. But I I, I agree with uh, Sir Nigel Tier in his decision here that that is relevant. That it is a an odd situation. 
if there's a party who's seeking to make a claim who is also then forced to choose between mitigation and having the biggest possible claim. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Totally agree with you on that. Um, and, and to the extent that you, you could mitigate entirely such that there's no limit at all, it, yeah. it just didn't it didn't stack up, right? right. It doesn't make sense. There's, there's then a disincentive for you to, to mitigate. Um, so yeah, I, I yeah I, I I didn't quite follow that, and and I'm, I agree with um, with this latest decision. Uh, but what what's again coming back to, and I, I don't mean to harp on about it, but coming back to the fact that we are looking at an international convention here. Both Burton and Tier um, mentioned that um, we shouldn't be worried necessarily about unusual outcomes that uh it, it is possible that because an international convention is a creature of compromise that there may be unusual um outcomes that arise from that and there's a little bit of tension in that as, as i see it there's this concept well okay there could be unusual circumstances coming out of a, an interpretation of, of the convention, but at the same time, we have to first work out what was the intention here? What, what, were, what, what are the words supposed to mean? And if there's an outcome that just makes no sense at all and goes against what the drafters must have intended – then it, it does go into the question of what do the words mean? Yeah. So, it, it, you know, there's a, it's, it's a, there's a very fine line there as, as I see it. Yeah, and I think, I think you also if you go back through the authorities, that's, that's consistent with the way that authorities have treated in general the use of words like loss or damage. And the one that jumped out for me, which, was, which is cited at paragraph 69 of this decision, is the Anglo-Saxon petroleum case. Um, and that was um, Mr. Justice Devlin. And in that case, it reads, um, to, so this, this, was, this was considering the carriage of goods by CIA 1936. And sections four, four, subsection one and subsection two of that act, um, it provided that the carrier would not be liable for loss or damage arising from unseaworthiness unless caused by want of due diligence, and that the carrier would not be liable for, again, loss or damage arising from any of the named exceptions. Um, and in that case, the judge said that, um, uh, to find the key, the key points, the act is dealing with responsibilities and liabilities under contracts of carriage for goods by sea, and clearly such contractual liabilities are not limited to physical damage. A carrier may be liable for loss caused by the caused to the shipper by delay or misdelivery, even though the goods themselves are intact. I see no reason why the general words loss or damage should be limited to physical loss or damage. And you know, obviously, this is different from from the Hague Visby rules. It's not exactly the same wording. It's not exactly the, you know. So this is this is a statutory uh, limitation. It's not a, so. It's not it's not part of the the same contractual framework. So this decision isn't isn't one that. Um, that Sir Nigel Tier was was bound to follow in making in making this decision, um, but it does seem to me that what the, the decision that we have here is consistent with with that decision in in the Anglo-Saxon Petroleum case. I agree. I, I think you're right, Cal. It's a good point, and it's interesting. There's not a lot of decisions on this point actually. When you when you sit back and think about it, that. Um, one might expect there to be more authority on on the point as what damage means yeah. uh, in the in the context of carriage of goods by sea and damage to goods. Um, but when when I looked at this and I, I 
I just thought about what would I interpret the words goods lost or damaged to mean in isolation. Um, And my instinct on that, and why I ultimately think that this decision is right, and of course, you know, because of the reasoning and all the rest of it, but just when I, I think about those words, in the absence of some restriction on damaged, I I don't see why that would be limited to physical damage. Like I, if I think about goods lost or damaged, right, I don't necessarily think that damaged is is limited in, in, in its meaning. Um, I would say you can damage something in lots of different ways. You can damage it physically. You can damage it economically. You can, in, in this instance, have a lean over, over goods, which would be a damage of sorts to it. Now, if there was language that expressly limited it, that's a different story. Um, but, the, but it goes further than that in this, in this case because you have the words that we talked about before in connection with the goods further up in, in the provision. And so, there's, although it is discussed here, there's little doubt in my view that that um, expressly means something that could be beyond physical damage. Uh, and so you have further up or earlier in this same sentence reference to um, uh, uh, physical damage and um, you know non-physical damage, if you like. Though it's not those aren't the words used, but that's the effect of in connection with. And 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 you've got to then you know read those words and put them uh, next to the words that follow later on: goods lost or damaged. And so you have to think about what is the connection between these two words? You know, are we going to apply these sets of words? Are we going to say, well, because in connection with expressly contemplates um, non-physical damage, let's say, and then we have this other phrase, which is different further in the clause, that because they're not exactly the same words, they should be given different meanings. And you can kind of see the force to that, you know, that you can see that in different contexts. Or is uh, or are the words that are used latterly in the sentence just a catch-all right. of what had already been Try described? Trying to bring the same con- context in without just repeating yourself again yeah. in full with in connection with. Um, and where and again, when I read it, I very much took it to mean that goods lost or damage is is a catch-all of what had been described earlier in the sentence, yeah. uh, and that was the kind of plain meaning that I, I took away from it. Yeah, and that was also consistent with the dictionary, which, which they, they pulled out to look at, at what does the word damage and damaged mean on, in the Oxford English Dictionary. And um, they, you know, they, they, again, you know, that, that was consistent with the view that damage is not necessarily purely a physical thing. There was a, a kind of special category of damage referred to in the Oxford English Dictionary of physical damage, which gives a very strong suggestion that there are other categories of damage which are non-physical. Um, so overall, I think it makes a lot of sense, um, this decision. I think it, I, th- I think it's welcome. Yeah, I agree. What about, um, what about the, the points around um, whether th- there's a distinction in the types of damage, so um, physical or economic in, in nature, and whether some types should be limited and some shouldn't be limited. Like, again, for me, when you think about it in that way, um, there's no good reason why you would have an unlimited um, 
uh, approach to economic types of damage, yeah. but a limited approach to damage types. It, that, again, I, I couldn't understand conceptually why the drafters would have approached in that way. The distinction would be artificial, mm. I think. And and I agree that was the that was another wrinkle that they noted in previous cases. And again here, what what what's the purpose then of having a category of unlimited damage and a category of limited damage where both arise out of the goods essentially. Be interesting to see whether this one goes up. Yeah. Um, because it, you know both of us um, ha have read it uh, and and look, there's it's not just us. There have been um, a number of commentators on, on this provision mm -hmm. since the Burton um, decision uh, querying. Yeah. I think that's probably as high as they they put it. Uh, it the the authorities like Voyage Charters and and, and some of the others, Carver on uh, uh, on Charters ha haven't come out and completely said that's wrong. But you know, it's this. Well, it's a bit curious. Yeah, so uh, it's is curious. That right? Is that is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah so uh, I'll I'll be interested to see if this goes up, and if if it does go up, what what the decision whether it's overturned with two decisions going alternative ways, you, you'd expect that leave will be granted on this uh, if they appeal it. But I'm not sure it's wrong. <laughs> you know, I, to the contrary, I think it's a, the right decision. Um, could you make could, look? Imagine you're on the other side of this one. Could you make that make that out? Like, what, what's your what's your argument going to be on on appeal? Well, what, you know, you're convincing your client to run this yeah. um, and and take on the the risk of costs or whatever else. And there's substantial amounts at play here, so you know it wouldn't be hard to make out that type of discussion with a client. Yes. Uh, what are you going to say? What are you going to say to a client? Say, look, let's appeal. We can overturn this at court of appeal. I mean, practically, you would say the courts have gone either way on this, so it's there's every chance that the court of appeal could go one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, fundamentally, that's that's the practical reality. In legal terms. Um, and if you're at, if you are advising your client on this, then they've probably looked through um, the relevant article of the Hague Bisbee Rules a hundred times or more since this happened. <laughs> um, but I think in legal terms, you would be saying that there is something there is something there to be to be said for the fact that um, the uh, I think you'd be going back to this wording around in connection with the yep. fact that the the, the the clause sets up one cat one category of of, of damage. At part one of the clause, and then seems to set up a different type of damage at a second part of the clause, and you'd be saying that you know there is some inconsistency there, and it it must be that the second part of the clause is referring to something different than the first part of the clause. I think you're right. That's what I was going to say too. We often see this actually at at a higher level. Courts will be ready, whether it's in a contract or in this case an international convention. And again, it is different when you're looking at international convention. You've got to accept that there might be unusual circumstances that arise. Uh, and I think you, you could say that a, a higher court will not be as troubled in taking the, um, the Burton J approach of unusual outcomes coming out of, yeah. out of construing. And if if the drafters wanted to make sure that they caught whatever damages are in connection with the goods, they could have used better words to do that at the end of it, clearer words. Uh, and you can see that. And, and there is a basic principle around if you use different words, you mean something different. Yeah. If you use the same words, you mean the same. Yeah, and you can, you, I mean, you can see the argument. Are the, are the goods damaged 
by the exercise of a lien. I mean, I, can, I, I do see very sensible arguments for how they are. And when you look at what damage really means, when you look at the way a loss or damage is treated historically, is there some kind of economic damage around that lien? Yes. And I think that's why I think it's probably right. But equally, if you, is it, is, are the goods strictly damaged by it or are they just um, devalued? You know, and that's really the, the, the justice burden distinction. Mm. Interesting. Shall we? Shall we try a, a very short summary? Yeah, let's let's wrap it. I'm going to try and summarize this in about one minute, and I think that the summary is actually very short. Really, the so the case here, the ratio is that the limitation on liability that an owner benefits from under the Hague Visby Rules, Article Four, Rule Five A, um, which talks about. 667.67 units of account per package or two units of account per kilogram of gross weight of the goods lost or damaged is not talking about the gross weight of the goods lost or damaged physically. It's talking about the uh, two units of account per kilogram of the gross weight of the goods which have been subject to some form of damage, which could be economic damage. It could feasibly be depreciation. It could be all sorts of different things, but they have to have suffered some kind of economic loss in this case someone exercising a right in priority to the receiver. I like it. Good summary, Callum. There's two or, two procedural points that also come out of this case. One is that the, um, the parties have agreed to put a point of law before the court out of an arbitration. Uh, worth keeping in mind for any um, arbitration case where you think that the decision may turn on a point of law, which could end up being an appeal point after an arbitral award. And the second one is a, a point on precedent, that when you have um, a first instance decision uh, that goes one way, the second, and it's the first time that that issue is dealt with and that um, decision has not been followed since, the second time that uh, issue comes before the court um, at first instance, they can overturn it. They can go a completely different way. The third time that that then um, is dealt with, if it, assuming it's not been appealed on the second time, if it goes to the third occasion, then the third judge has to look at the, the issue through the lens of how the second judge looked at it. Um, so we, we, we had some fun getting into precedent and how that works under English law in the, in the, the court system. Really enjoyed this talk today, Callum. It's good, good to get back on the horse for another year. Thank you, everyone, for staying with us. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion today, and um, we'll be back next week with uh, an, another episode of Case by Case. Please like or subscribe or follow or whatever the button says, whether you're watching on YouTube, listening on LinkedIn or Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, I don't know if we're anywhere else, but I'm sure Rachel will tell me. Good stuff. Thanks for listening in. Until next time, take care.